Wealth isn't built really on cash flow. Cash flow buys you your freedom, which is great. We're all chasing that freedom, but building that wealth to kind of expedite that freedom is built through appreciation and assets. If you're not conscious about your investment strategy, you won't end up where you want to be, not financially or as a human. On this show, we interview highly successful investors and share how they overcame limitations to become unstoppable forces of success. If you're ready to learn what it is to be a conscious investor so you can end up where you want, keep listening. Welcome back, Conscious Investor. Anthony, I'm so excited to have you here on the Conscious Investor Podcast. Welcome. My pleasure. I'm so excited to be here and I can't wait to provide as much as I can to your audience. I know that it's going to be absolutely robust. We've met before. We have great conversations and the conscious investor doesn't know you. So let's just dive in real fast and start at the beginning and say, what do you do and how did you get started? Yeah, great question. So I'll try to sum it up as quickly as possible, but I um, syndicate real estate. So primarily we focus on multifamily. We um, have really scaled our company the last three years. So we have raised about 53 million in capital we have about 116 million in assets under management with another about 40 under development or construction. And we are just scaling our company, bringing on employees. And our focus is on the Intermountain West and Northwest markets. I got started similar to, I'm sure, a lot of people in real estate. I wanted to pursue financial freedom. That was my first goal. I said, hey, look, I didn't grow up wealthy. I'm not going to get a big hit inheritance. So I said, this is up to me. And so I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That was the book that got me obsessed with what I do today. From that point, which was about freshman year of college, I consumed podcasts. I became obsessed with what I call the game of real estate, just understanding every in and out of it, how to get the best returns, how to provide freedom, and how to chase the life that I'm truly looking for. I mean, my ultimate goal is to chase my passions, to live freely, to live healthy. And if anything ever gets in the way of that, then I'll quit what I'm doing and I'll make a pivot because that is what's most important to me. First started though, was right out of college, I took a job because I was too scared to start my own business. Again, no entrepreneurs in my family, no one's saying, hey, go after that real estate business. Here's how you can buy real estate with no money down or do that. I didn't even know about passive investing or syndications, nor did I have the money to do that. So I took a job, which lasted about five months of me listening to podcasts for 40 hours a week and <laughs> had zero idea what I was going to do. And so I quit that job and just told myself, hey, I'm going to flip houses and I'm going to wholesale because that seemed simple. And that's what all the podcast gurus were doing. So Jumped in with my feet forward, actually read Rich Dad Poor Dad again to get kind of my baseline where I wanted to be again. So I've read that book three times and it's, I, I still read it. I'll probably read it again in a couple of years because it's a very simple book, but it just gets you aligned in what you're trying to do, in my opinion. And then went and worked for a gentleman for $10 an hour. Again, I had two degrees, a degree in finance and a degree in marketing, went and worked for a guy for $10 an hour to learn how he managed his real estate portfolio and how he bought 220 or managed 220 single family houses that he had bought from property tax auction sales. And he never made more than 70K a year and was now making well over a million dollars a year in passive income, had a beautiful house on the river, was living a dream life, right? Never made more than 70K a year. So if anyone's out there making 70K a year, it's been done and he's doing it. But during that time, I realized that I didn't like wholesaling because in my opinion, it's not a relational business and I'm a very relational guy. 
What I mean there is you wholesale someone's house and you're done with them most of the time. You know, unless they have a few properties, maybe you get one or two from them. But I just didn't like that. I really like relationships and I like building people's trust and getting them to stick by me, getting them to believe in what I preach, my vision, my mission. And so learned what a real estate agent did during that time. My family has lived in the same house for the last 26 years. And so I just couldn't remember using a real estate agent when I was younger. So I had no idea what they did. Learned what they did, got my real estate license, did really well there, sold about 10 million my first year in the Coeur d'Alene area. And then over the next year and a half, formed a team and sold another 70 million. So we sold about 80 million with my team, brought on my now business partner, two buyer's agents, and then exited or walked away from that business. Didn't really exit, didn't make any money on the exit, just walked away from it to take that capital. And during that time, invested it heavily into Cornerstone and used that as kind of like the seed capital to hire our first employees and get Cornerstone to the place to raise the capital that we have and kind of have the resources for marketing, our own office space, just kind of seed capital to launch a business. And then that's where I'm at today. I love your story. It's so fascinating. I want to go back to flipping. And I love how you're talking about wholesaling and right. It's transactional. You're right. It's not relational. It's like, okay, cool, done. We're done. I'll never see you again. Peace out. And I'm like you. Like I want our investors to be repeat investors, which they are. Yeah. Everything should be repeat. Like stay in my life. And I had a taste of it. So the reason I didn't go for wholesaling or just for flipping is because I had a taste of flipping. When I was 15, I bought my first car and then a tree fell on it and I got insurance money and it was worth more than the car. And I bought the car for 250 bucks and I put an engine in it. And so I only put 800 bucks into it and insurance gave me 3000. And so that gave me the niche of now flipping cars for the next, gosh, 15 to all through college, paid my entire college flipping cars on the side while I went to college. And so I got a taste of entrepreneurship and also that transactional business. And it's really no different than flipping a car. Ideally, real estate has better asset value. But if you're not holding on to it, you don't get the benefits of the taxes, the benefits of the forced appreciation. You're buying it. You're fixing it. You're flipping it. It's really not a lot different than flipping a car. Bigger scale, obviously. And so I had a taste of that. And I had a taste of always chasing the next deal. And In my opinion, if you're just always chasing the next deal, you're never going to find that freedom because if you want to go spend time with your family in a month in Baja and you don't have the money because the money in your bank account is going down, you're eventually going to have to go back to your life to go flip more houses. And that's not the life that I'm chasing personally. Right. So walk us through, walk the conscious investor and I through, how is it you create that financial stability so that you're not on that, the swing? This is why so many people choose to stay in the comfort zone of working for a company because they're like, no, I don't know how to create that level of stability. I don't want to go through that. And guess what? Conscious investor, I know you love your job. So I mean, like you're going to state your job just simply because you love your job. So this for some of the people that are considering the swings of things, how do you create that stability that you're talking about? With Absolutely. So I think that there's two pools. And this is for the person that's at their job. They love it. Maybe you're a Boeing engineer. Maybe you're an airplane pilot or you just love what you do. But you want to increase your financial stability on their side. I always think someone should have the ability to step away if they want to, right? If something changes, you get a new boss and you can't stand them. You have a life-changing moment. Your parents get sick. You have a family member that gets sick. And you say, this is more important to me to take care of them than to chase this passion for the short term, right? So you want the ability to step away. And that's what I always encourage people, just have 
the ability to do that. So I consider it in two pools. I think you have your long-term investment. And ideally, this is outside of your 401k. This is something that you can invest that cash flows to you. And then you have what you call your time velocity of money pool. This is where there can be flipping or that shorter term hold a little bit more risky because the idea here is that this money is a smaller pool, but you can more actively manage it. When you can more actively manage money, typically you can get a higher return. So again, this might be something where you could be even investing passively, but it could be into a development or something a little bit more risky where the idea is you double that money every three to five years. But if that doesn't go as well, and you have to hold a long term, like you're not guaranteed that money. So you have the time velocity of money. And what that does is allows you to double quicker. And when you start making returns from this pool, you put it into your passive pool. That passive pool now is what provides you that monthly income. And that's kind of the philosophy that I've seen a lot of people, conscious investors have a lot of success doing. Let's say you're just starting. Let's say that you have been maxing out your 401k. You've got a good 401k, but you know you can't touch that until you're 60. And so you want to start pulling up your passive income outside your 401k. So that's kind of your first nest egg is you put it into something where you can make better returns, quicker returns. It's a little bit more risky. And then say you double that 100. Now you take 100, you put it in the passive. So you double that 100 over here again, you take it, you put it in the passive and you keep on. And in 10 years, you can be financially free. I've seen it done time and time again. And that's would be my biggest recommendation. I absolutely love that. And I think it's super fun that you flipped cars. <laughs> <laughs> and I forget that that is actually a thing out there and people do that. And I love the correlation between flipping cars, flipping houses, transactional. You really have that taste of, wait, this isn't the roller coaster ride I want to be on. How do I create this stability? And here are the resources that I have and really diving in full throttle. It's absolutely amazing. When we think about people pursuing financial freedom, and as a conscious investor, I know we pursue personal freedom and financial freedom falls under that umbrella. You've really touched along this in different capacities. And I'm just curious, like, how do you live that balanced along the way? How do you keep that balance? If you can just walk us through that concept of really having personal freedom throughout your journey so that you're not bankrupting the other parts of your life, chasing after this financial freedom. Like, how do you take care of yeah. your health? And I think that's such a valid question because that's what everyone says. I actually just sat down with my business partner and told him this, my philosophy on this. And I don't believe in true balance. I don't think you can have equal parts of your life at all times, meaning that I don't think you can chase building wealth and try to have that perfectly balanced out at the same time. Now, what I do believe in is you can balance it out over the long term. So if you want to pursue something relentlessly for, let's say, three months, you're like, hey, look, I have this opportunity. It is an incredible opportunity. It's an investment opportunity. I think it's going to yield me great results. I have all the resources. Look at the financials of it. I've underwritten it, but I know how much heavy lifting it's going to take. So you spend three months. And so your line's middle, right? And you go way to the side and you put a lot of time and you talk to your family. You're very communicative to your, if you have loved ones, a wife or your husband, your kids, you say, hey, look, honey, I'm going to go into this, right? You spend the three months there, but this is the important part. When you've achieved that, as nice as that may be, that achievement, you maybe you doubled your money, you tripled your money, you made a hundred, five hundred thousand dollars let's say. You have to then spend the next two months on your family, right? So you have to repair the relationships or just spend that quality time. So eventually you've got something like this that is equilibrium in the middle. 
And that's what I think true balance is. So there's times in my life today where I am chasing something, right? Maybe it's our next fun launch, right? And I have to grind for a month straight. We're raising capital. We're getting this deal done. And then we get it done. And then the next month, I'm making sure everything's buttoned up. Everything looks good. I'm not just stepping away. I'm not spending zero time in that. But now I'm allocating more of my time to spending with my loved ones, my friends, and those things that I may have skipped on that side of it. And just mending those relationships or making sure those relationships are still intact. And that's what I believe balance is. I don't think you can have perfect balance all the time. In my opinion, it doesn't quite exist. I'm with you on that. Aside from maintaining physical well-being, like making sure that I have movement in my life and such, I generally exchange balance for harmony as a word if I want to use a word. I always think about walking. And when we are walking, nobody is walking on one. Okay. Mm -hmm. People are not walking on one foot. If they are missing a limb, then they're going to have some support mechanism for them. And if we are walking and we stand on one foot, if we just stay there, we would get all wobbly and stuff. And we have to have that movement, that forward Mm -hmm. movement going side to side, shifting around. And so that's that's what creates a balance. Yeah, Yeah. that's a very good point. And my philosophy is I on the balance sheet, the number one thing in my life, doesn't matter about anything, is my health. Like I wake up and go to the gym five, six times a week. And the day that I take off, I'm at least going for a walk. I get daily exercise every single day. I eat a good diet. Like that is at the core of my investment principle because none of the investments you do, nothing in life matters if you can't live in long enough to um, enjoy it. So never, in my opinion, it doesn't matter how hard you want to grind on one of those sides of your balance curve. Your health and fitness come at the foundation of everything, in my opinion. That's physical and mental, always taking care of your mental health. You have to understand that even if you want to grind to that, but you're not in the mental place to do that, then there are sacrifices you have to make in the short term. You may have to turn down an opportunity, but those are the most important things because that's the whole reason you're chasing financial freedom or chasing this freedom in life that you're looking for is to be healthy and fit and feel good. You're a true conscious investor. I was already excited to have you on the show because we've spoken and I already believe we had an aligned philosophy, but that is I'm working on the book right now and the foundation of everything is health. Then it's mindset, yeah. then it's wealth. And the wealth and the becomes beautiful is, then. The key that I've heard of or I've been told about this and that I employ in my life isn't like I'm not trying to have a six pack. I'm not trying to do this, this and this. My goal is energy optimization. Like if you can be energy optimized, meaning that you can wake up feeling excited about life. You can work for eight hours, let's say your job, and then you can get home. Even if you're a Boeing engineer and you had the hardest day, if you take care of your body and you are full of energy, you got good sleep, you ate a good diet, you can get home and now have the same amount of energy to treat your kids and your wife that your life gets so much better. So that would be my recommendation is don't chase having some sort of physique Unless that's very important to you and it's part of your, like, your identity, your life, chase energy optimization because the rest of it is just an output of chasing energy optimization. I really appreciate that. I've been, my daughter, she's a tween and she goes to the gym with me. She loves going to the okay. gym. She reached the age where I said, okay, you're allowed now. I wanted her to be a little kid for a little bit. Like, <laughs> you don't have to go to the gym. I mean, it's fun. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love going to the gym. That's probably why she wants to go. All that to say, I constantly remind her, think about your 80-year-old self. Think about Mm -hmm. your 60-year-old self. Like, you're not here to prove anything. You're here to be fit and healthy. This is about 
longevity and health and wellness, but I am totally going to add the energy to it. because Energy optimization, because you want to live as healthy as you can for as long as you can. This was probably a pivotal mindset shift that I've had this year. I used to tell people, I want to live till I'm 110 or 120. I'm like, no longer do I want that. I want to live until I'm whatever age it is, but I want to be skiing until I die. You know, like I want to be that 90 year old on the ski hill that has strong bones that is not decrepit. I want to be strong, healthy at 90 or 100 years old. Like that's my goal. And that starts as young as you possibly can because it takes a lifetime of watching your body, watching your nutrition to achieve that. And honestly, I want to live as long as I can. And then I just want to drop dead because I don't want to be decrepit. I want to be strong and healthy in my old age. That's a pivotal mindset shift because I was like, oh, I'm going to live forever. I'm like, no, I want to be healthy forever. That's my goal. I hear you on that a million percent. And we won't even go down that path. We can think about people where we've had that experience of watching them deteriorate, watching my granddad like deteriorate over the years. And it happened quickly. They were traveling until their early 90s. But once the deterioration started taking place, I'm glad it was a faster process because that's not a fun place for people who are active and used to living an adventurous life. Yeah. I've known people in their 60s and 70s that have passed away from diseases that are from diet and exercise and living, not having the diet and diseases or even cancer that could have been preventable through a proper diet and a whole foods kind of diet, which I'm not saying like it's very hard to eat fully whole foods, but if you can do 80, 85, 90% whole foods or just at home have whole foods, and then you splurge when you go out to dinner and you have a cheeseburger, like, okay, great. And then cut out all fast food. Like, great. You're better than most and you're going to live up such a better life. I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I see like a perfect diet. I certainly don't. I certainly go to restaurants and sometimes I want to have something delicious, but in my cupboard, I keep whole foods. Then I don't get tempted. I think that's a huge key, but it's tough. It is a tough thing to chase, especially in the modern American diet is everywhere around you. And it's so tempting. It is very tough to live outside the norm. Yeah. This is why I can't go move down to Coeur d'Alene. There's so much good food down there compared to Bonner's Ferry. <laughs> I'm deprived up here. Okay. But you know, switching gears, going back to investing. I'm just curious, what are you guys focusing on? I know you do a lot of development. What are some of the things that you are noticing? I won't put you on the spot to say for a prediction, but how are you positioning yourself for the next 12 to 24 months? And what are you excited about? Yeah, great question. So we refuse to play in the 434 cap market that 2021 presented us. So we acquired one project, our value add last year, but the majority of our stuff the last few years, as you mentioned, has been development, which we will continue to do. We have land that we have acquired at really good basis that we will develop through the next 12, 28. We'll just do development forever, probably. But with that, that's what we already have. We already have that all set up. We're going all in now on acquisition. So we see some very good pricing. I have a meeting in January, kind of have a verbal offer and a commitment on a price on an asset in the six cap range. It's below replacement and a very good market and a dream asset. It's about a $33 million asset and it would be about $40 million to build today, six plus cap. And it's not even distressed through the seller's cycle. He's ready just to sell it, to use that capital elsewhere. He still has a lot of money in that or equity in that deal. So he's going to go place his equity in a different deal. So I do see some very good pricing coming out. I think there's a lot of opportunity in multifamily. I think there's a lot of opportunity in repositioning the office. This building also has some office space. It's leased up and doing really well. But um, I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity to buy higher cap rates than we've seen over the last five, six years. I also think that 
2024 isn't going to be much better because everyone's looking at the treasury as, oh man, interest rates could come down, which they certainly could. They have a little bit, but interest rates aren't the only factor at play here. They held them high for so long. There's consumer debt, there's loan debt, there's loan defaults. There's all these other fundamental issues with banks and the bonds. The US can't even pay their debt service. They have to print more money. So I think that 2024 is not going to look better by any means. I think it's going to be pretty similar, pretty flat line. I do think pricing will still probably stay in that for multifamily in that six, six and a half. And some of the Texas markets, I probably wouldn't even buy anything under a seven cap. And that's just my opinion, unless it's a deep value add, of course. I'm talking market rate. There's always a value add and development stuff that's different. And then I think 25 might be a little bit better. I certainly think 26 is going to be a good year. But I think the next 12 to 24 months will be probably one of the most opportune times of this cycle to buy assets. But it's also the hardest time to raise capital. It's the hardest time to get bank debt. So every single deal is going to come with challenge, but you will not regret it in 26, 27, 28. And with that, I think we're going to have the biggest bull run that we've ever seen. I think it's going to be a bigger bull run than from 2008 to 21 because we have two thirds more money in the system. So everyone thinks the system's going to break. It never breaks. They thought everything was going to crash and fail when we hit $5 trillion in debt, $10 trillion. Now we have $30 trillion and the world's not coming to an end. I think it's certainly bad. I don't think what the government's doing is good. But if they were to fix that and reset things, it would make a lot of wealthy people lose a lot of money, which is also not what people want to do. So with the amount of money they have in the system from COVID and the amount of money, there's about $8 trillion sitting in money markets. There's more money than ever at the business level, that will pour back down into employees. Employee salaries are going to go up, which is going to increase rent, which is going to lead to the biggest bull market we've ever seen, in my opinion, and the opinions of some people that I'm fortunate enough to get to talk to who have been in this industry for decades and decades. That's really exciting. And we always like to hear bull markets and all the funds, but you're totally right. I mean, when we talk about any time that there is upside, I would say, there's either lots of opportunity to buy and there's like it's the money is scarce or there's a ton of money and we're in that transition right now where there's a ton of money and there aren't enough assets to buy. And so some people want to time the market and like, oh, I'm going to get it just right. In fact, my husband was looking at a portfolio and I'm just like, this isn't ever why are you kind of seemed like he was trying to time the market. Yeah. And I know he's not because we both know better, but it was just funny. I'm like, hey, are you trying to time the market or something? You know, what do you think some of the passive investors that are sitting on the sidelines just kind of, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to sit over here with my cash because I feel safer. Let's speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. So do you know what the worst investment in 2023 was? Uh, savings accounts? <laughs> Exactly. If you put all the funds together, everyone's sitting in five-year or 10-year treasuries, five-year, two-year treasuries, high-yield savings, it's making you 5%. But the S&P 500 beat you, the NASDAQ beat you, my real estate portfolio beat you, pretty much every index or fund out there beat your 5% safe money. Because it's safe. I get that. It's risk-free, but it's a terrible investment. I mean, I have money sitting in high-yield savings, but that's sitting there waiting to put earnest money on deals we're going to buy and then keep it in deals that's going to cash flow the same or better. But with that, I think the people that are looking right now are really focused on cash flow. So even if you went and bought a six or seven cap asset, it's 6% interest, your cash flow is not going to be crazy. You could probably beat 
maybe your high yield savings by a little bit, but of course there's more risk. And that's what a lot of people are stuck on. Why would I invest in your asset that's cash flowing 5% when I can get 5% of my high yield savings? Well, the play right now is that time velocity money. It's that appreciation play. It's how quickly do you believe you can double, triple, quadruple your original investment? Because 5% on $100,000 is great, but 5% on $400,000 in eight years from now or 10 years from now is significantly better. So as an investor, that's what I'd recommend is not focusing on cash flow right now. Unless you can find a needle in the haystack, really good deal, a 10 or 15 cap that really makes sense. Focus on underpriced assets. Focus on assets that if they went, say you bought it at a five or six and a quarter cap, or you invest in passively into a six and a quarter cap, and long-term that you've done your research, you think that market's going to be a five cap again someday. Look at what that money just between those are going to make you And then look at the rent appreciation expected for that market. And you're going to make a lot more money than your cash flow ever will by focusing on the appreciation right now. And then in five years from now, maybe that sponsor or your investment refinances it. You get back your original investment and your cash flow and you can go invest into another one. And that's when wealth is really built. Wealth isn't built really on cash flow. Cash flow buys you your freedom, which is great. We're all chasing that freedom. But building that wealth to kind of expedite that freedom is built through appreciation and assets. So, and now there has not been a better time to focus on appreciation since the last recession. I mean, we are seeing pricing, we're seeing rents go down, we're seeing lease ups way under what the market was, you know, in 21. And it's a great time to take advantage of that if you have the capital to do so. Nice. I agree with everything that you're saying. And It's interesting to hear you and I catch different things. If we dip our fingers into any of the social media outlets, particularly on LinkedIn, you get lots of opinions out there. Lots of people that say so many different things. And I'm like, it's just so fascinating to me how vast the perspectives are. And so really understanding what are the dials that are actually moving behind the scenes? Mm -hmm. What are the driving factors here? Because not all of these opinions and perspectives are created equal and it will affect somebody's bottom line. Conscious investor aligning with a philosophy that isn't grounded is going to definitely cost you that wealth gain over time. Totally. And that's the thing. So right now in the market, your NOI, your net operating income on an asset And it's getting hit by both ends. I'm sure everyone's heard insurance is going up, taxes are going up, all these different things are going up on operators right now. At the same time, we have supply coming into the market in pretty much every asset class, which is either keeping rents level and decreasing them in many markets. So it's shrinking that NOI. So again, when you have a smaller NOI and the cap rate goes up, so if you're buying at a six cap, that could really be a six and a half cap in the future pretty quickly once you get back to where the market rents are when that supply is up. And then expenses will get better. Your insurance rates and whatnot, that's the beautiful part of investing in the US is we have a capitalistic society, meaning that there's an issue right now. That issue is insurance. Someone will come out there with a different insurance product or something out there that will lower insurances And then everyone will want to compete with it. And then insurance will come back down. You see it time and time again in history. Insurance goes up and down as well, just like the market. And so again, right now, it's a good time because you're getting just compressed and compressed on it. If you own an asset, it's a terrible time to sell. I wouldn't recommend selling in this year. But if you're buying, it's a terrible time to buy because the people that are selling 
don't really want to sell, but it's just the right time for them to sell. And they're willing to make that sacrifice because they have either other plans or it's just their lifetime cycle. So that's, mm-hmm. that's my biggest recommendation. And sitting on the sidelines is going to make you little money. I mean, Warren Buffett made the majority of his wealth in the bottom of the last recession. So mm-hmm. he knows we should follow the same kind of blueprint, you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's really, really important to be doing. When you think about some of the risks, what would you say are some of the risks that you see and threats to investing in commercial real estate? Great question. So I'm always a component on putting the proper leverage on property. So there's a lot of pref shark debt out there right now. There's a lot of different debt instruments right there that are out there to fill the gap. And the idea is, oh, wait, we'll be able to refinance in the future, but no one can really predict what the Fed's going to do. I mean, certainly we could have a 70s event where this inflation goes down, they cut rates, and then we have the 80s where the inflation went way higher, rate 18% rates. Not saying that's going to happen, but it certainly could. No one expected the Fed to increase rates as quickly as they could. So betting on a refinance, I think, is far too risky right now. I would recommend investing in assets that have equity and senior debt. And if the cash flow is not great, again, make sure they're DSCR, make sure they're not over leveraged and make sure that they can hold longer term. Because again, I think just banking on a refinance in this industry right now is just scary because the market's too volatile. So I think that's the biggest risk because if you have to refinance and you can't and you have bad debt that's asking to be paid back and you can't and you lose the asset, then that's not what you want to do. So even if you have a little bit more equity and you're not seeing the crazy return you could, if it was over leveraged, it's worth it right now because losing money is worse than making even a slightly smaller return. So that'd be my first recommendation. It's all about debt right now, as well as I would look at we got so comfortable. A lot of investors got really comfortable with two or three year holds. I have conversations on a weekly basis. Why are you guys holding positive five to seven or a seven to 10 or a 10 plus year hold and not a two to three? You know, I made a 30% IRR on this last hold I did in Texas, and which is great. People did it. They bought in 2020 and sold in 21, 22. They did incredible, but that's no longer the market. So I think another risk for especially passive investors is falling in love with the idea of getting that quick IRR, going into something where they say in Texas, I just saw a deal, someone's pitching a five and a half cap and they think they're going to sell it at a five cap after they've done renovations and it's like a two-year hold. And I'm like, do you think the market's going to shift that much in two years? It certainly could, or it's going to be overpredicted because we're just not the same market we were in 21 and we're not going to be for a very long time. I don't think we'll see interest rates at that rate again. So I think it's going to be a bit for these oversupplied markets in the Sun Belt to hit that five cap range again, just because they have a lot of supply and there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of stuff to buy. So those are probably the two biggest risks that I see right now with investors. I love those. And I thoroughly agree. I like to see a long runway on fixed debt. Like, call me crazy. Call me somebody that was raised in real estate, but <laughs> I mean, scarred from the early 2000s. But all that to say is so important in that whole time. You know, yes, it was hot and things could turn mm-hmm. two to three years. Some people even in fewer months than that. But oh, yeah, times have changed. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing, too, is if you did buy an asset and they now need to recapitalize or you invested into an asset, really understand why the asset is failing and why they're, if they're doing a capital call or something like that. Really understand why they're doing it because the last thing you want to do is try to save a sinking ship. I mean, if you invested Gosh, into it and it's just yeah. like, this is not going to perform well, or it's going to take 10 years to get back to where you want it because they bought it at such a low 
cap rate in 21, let's say, sometimes it's best to just cut your losses and then move on and don't do that capital call because I see it a lot right now. I see some deals right now that people are putting their money back into the capital call and the assets not even worth what they have on the debt on it. So that's my other like biggest risk is don't just trust people. I'm not saying don't trust people, but don't trust people when they say that the asset's going to do well because it could take 10 years to regain some of the equity and some of these assets people bought in that three cap range. It's scary. And when I think about some of the decisions that have been made over the last seven years of commercial real estate investing, a lot of people that were well-intended, but who were ill-informed on the downside of real estate market cycles and the reality that they happen and they happen swiftly. Yeah. And another thing I'd say is like, if you're going to make an investment, understand what that asset offers above other assets, right? So don't just invest into that three-story walk-up apartment building that offers nothing based on compared to all these new assets that are being delivered to the market. Because I think as commercial real estate in general pivots, there's a massive pivot that's coming in office and multifamily and everything like that. Invest into something that has a story and has some sort of competitive advantage. It's just my advice. I mean, if you're investing into office space, there's a massive vacancy right now, but you know what's not vacant is luxury office space because people want to keep their employees. And so they are getting the nicest office space with the best amenities. And that's retaining employees because it's better than staying at home in their home office. So, and then a multifamily, as home ownership becomes more and more unaffordable, as home prices didn't decrease like they should have or people predicted they would because there's such a demand on them or a shortage, more mm-hmm. people are going to be forced to rent. But Do you want to invest into an asset where your renters have zero pride of ownership? That's just going to lead to high turnover, people leaving your apartment for the brand new apartment down the road. Invest into something that has some sort of pride of ownership so your tenants can leave that property and say, that's where I live. I'm excited to live there. Oh yeah, I live at X, Y, and Z. And it doesn't matter if you're passive or you're buying it yourself. Invest into something where your tenants have some sort of pride behind it because you're going to get better tenant retention. You're going to get higher rents. You're going to get everything because they have something to like draws them to that asset. I mean, there's 40,000 units being delivered to the Phoenix market, which is a lot even for that market. And what's to stop them from leaving your class B minus value out apartment and going to this brand new apartment for a hundred bucks more a month? Nothing. And they probably will because incomes are going to go up significantly as well coming up. That's my recommendation as well. Mic drop. Teach it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Anthony, this has been amazing. I value you. I value your perspective on life because it's harmonious. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Harmonious with the conscious investor, but it's so important that we take care of our shells, as I call them, the shell to our soul. I mean, like, what's the point? And I just value just your insight and your way to articulate the intricacies of investing and the upsides and the downsides. There are lots of investors out there, conscious investor. However, there aren't really that many experienced investors who can articulate things the way you've done and just distill them down. I appreciate that and your time coming to serve the conscious investor today. We'd love to know how does the conscious investor will drop links as always, but how would you like the conscious investor to connect up with you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm most active on Instagram, Anthony Walker 18, or on LinkedIn. You just search my name, Anthony Walker. Those are where I'm most active. And then my website is just www.cornerstonecommercialinvestments.com. And we've got an office in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So if you ever want to 
search us, swing by and grab a coffee. Let me know. I love meeting new people and I love interacting. That's how I learn. And it's a beautiful place to visit. And guess what? Conscious Investor. Just come to Conscious Investor Growth Summit and then just tie all this into your trip up to North Idaho to Coraline. There you go. Done and done. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Anthony, I appreciate you. And Conscious Investor, I appreciate the time that you took. You're investing in yourself, in your well-being, and your knowledge and your understanding. And this is going to help you have the confidence to take that first or that next step in your investment journey. So you know what? Make sure that we're not strangers. If you have not already scheduled a time for us to chat, it's not like going to your financial planner and it's not like going to your tax consultant. It's a conversation. I want to get to know you. If I can't serve and support your investment goals, I have a really great network and I'm not a stranger to making introductions when I'm not in a position to serve and support you to your highest level. Hey, conscious investor, I have a quick, humble ask. And that is that you head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave an honest rating and review. These rating and reviews allow me to reach other guests that are of different levels and statures and prominence and all of that. It really shows to them that, wow, you have engaged listeners who care about your show. So if you would take a moment and go and leave an honest rating and review, and the platform is, it's on Apple Podcasts. And to do that, you go to the main show. So if you're on an episode, you just have to click on the Conscious Investor Podcast. If you scroll towards the bottom, you'll see in little tiny font, it's so small, it'll say, write your own review, like write a review, just click on that. If you would take a moment and just let me know, me and these amazing guests that come onto the show, something that is helping and supporting you in your life. It absolutely mean the world to me and it supports a show in ways beyond measure. You have no idea. So thanks so much for taking 60, 90 seconds to just head over to Apple Podcasts to leave that honest rating and review Conscious Investor. Absolutely means the world to me. And until next time, make sure you're focusing on that health mindset and wealth. What's the big deal about investing in apartments? Why is it better than investing in a slew of single family homes? I've compiled a lot of information on why investing in a multifamily, also known as apartments, will help you reach your investment goals. Head over to threekeysinvestments.com and download the why invest in multifamily guide today. 